Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Whose minds have reached full excellence in the factors of awakening, who, having renounced acquisitiveness, rejoice in not clinging to things, rid of taints, Glowing with wisdom, they have attained Nibbana in this very life. Liberation, awakening, and Nibbana describe both the beginning and the end of the Buddhist path. It's the beginning in that the Buddha's awakening and the potential for awakening in ourselves represent the highest aspiration we might have as we undertake Buddhist practice. It is the end in that its achievement is the accumulation of successful Buddhist practice. It is also the middle in that it provides the compass we use to find our way through the many vicissitudes of practice. This is the stock description of its occurrence. Dwelling alone, secluded, heedful, ardent, and resolute, he reached and remained in the supreme goal of the holy life, for which clansmen rightly go forth from home into homelessness, knowing and realizing it for himself in the here and now. He knew birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done, there is nothing further for the sake of this world. In common usage, liberation means the freedom to do what you want. If you want to speak harshly of others, freedom of speech allows you to do so. If you want to eat ice cream, money in your pocket ensures that you can. In Buddhism, liberation is something deeper It is freedom from having to want. Buddhist practice begins with precepts and generosity and the discovery that personal well-being is also found there. It deepens into the project of purification of mind where we encounter resistance in the form of deeply rutted greed, hatred, and delusion in many manifestations. In the end, it is our delusions, our persistent misperceptions, and convoluted ways of viewing things that lie at the knotty root of the human condition, only to be dug up with the help of penetrating wisdom. The constraints of our own entangled minds, in spite of relentless effort, perpetuate a fearful, and needy self ever discontent with the world. Breaking through these complexes completes liberation, attains awakening, and realizes nibbana. 
It remains to describe the unfolding of this attainment. Awakening is generally regarded as ineffable, a mystical state that cannot be described with words, to be approached only through analogy or through poetry, like describing sight to the blind. Nonetheless, there are at least three systematic perspectives on awakening provided in the early teachings that help us gain some conceptual understanding of what awakening is and also to track our progress toward awakening. These perspectives are cosmology, dependent co-arising, and the fetters. The Cosmology of Attainment The Buddha provided us with a precise, integrated functional system of thought, grounded in ethics and psychology, accessible through understanding, training, and practice, practical in terms of its beneficial results. I hope I have conveyed in this series of talks an understanding of the depth of his insight and method. Early Buddhist discourse often takes a cosmological perspective that contrasts markedly with the perspective represented here. This is almost a parallel account that runs through the discourses. We see this in the gradual instructions, for instance, where the whole topic of kamma, the fruits of kamma and rebirth, is summarized as heavens. Similarly, jhanas and attainments on the path of awakening are given cosmological correlates. I have had relatively little to say about the cosmological perspective so far in this short series, so let's try to understand the purpose of this perspective briefly at this final juncture. Buddhist cosmology seems to share many elements with Vedic and Upanishadic cosmology and to have some unique features of its own, but not to have been very systematically developed in its early stage, and it would become in later Buddhist traditions. Its basis is multiple realms of existence distributed over many world systems. We are reborn over and over again into one realm or another. In fact, the key term sangsara, wandering on, is a reference to this process. Two of the realms are luckily already quite familiar to us all. The human realm, in which I trust most of the listeners to this podcast live, and the animal realm. Hi, Fluffy! Lower realms are unfortunate realms of woe. They include at least the animal realm, though Fluffy doesn't seem to have it so bad, the hungry ghost realm, and a number of hell realms. Higher realms are happier places, though even they do not exclude suffering. They include the human realm and multiple heavenly deva realms. Although virtually any of us can be reborn into any realm from there to die and be reborn anew, we learned in a talk or two ago 
that being reborn is in fact a kind of conceptual mistake that the Arahant will not make, since with the ending of delusion the great snarl of samsaric experience has unraveled and with it becoming has ceased, after which there is nothing even mistakenly to be reborn. Nonetheless, the vast majority of beings have been reborn over and over again in this way since beginningless time, sometimes slipping from one realm into another, now high, now low, and will generally continue to do so indefinitely into the future in the absence of practice on the Buddhist path, or something analogous. Buddhists are fond of describing practice attainments in terms of this cosmological model, and indeed this seems to have begun with the Buddha. Meritorious acts tend to produce rebirths in higher realms. Demeritorious acts tend to produce rebirths in lower realms. For the noble ones, special conditions apply. A stream-enterer, a once-returner, or a non-returner is nearing the very end of the sangsatic round of rebirths and is incapable in any case of ever being reborn in any future life in a lower realm. A stream-enterer will be reborn at most seven times altogether, so either in the human or in a deity realm. A once-returner will return once more to the human realm. A non-returner will return no more to the human realm, but attain awakening in a deva, a deity realm. An arahant is not reborn. The most striking point in Brutus cosmology is that awakening, that is, final liberation, which is the goal of the entire Buddhist project, entails the complete escape from sangsara, for an arahant will never again know rebirth. A lesser aspect of this cosmology that we have already encountered is visitation between realms, a valuable contributor to the more exciting storylines of many ancient texts. We're already familiar with visitation between the human and animal realms from our modern experience. In fact, I just left our temple dog. Similar visitation is common in the ancient texts between the deity and human realms. It should be noted that deities, the inhabitants of heavenly realms, clearly do not have a role as objects of worship in early Buddhism. The Buddha never endorsed such a practice for his disciples, and in fact visiting deities, even the highest in the Indian pantheon, venerate the Buddha and even the monastics. The most common visitor is the infamous Mara, actually a kind of fallen deity, always ready to tempt, discourage, seduce, and disarm, to do anything to bring the Buddhist practitioner away from what is wholesome, from what leads to nibbana or supports the sasana. With remarkable persistence, given that his rate of success seems quite low in the early texts. It is often pointed out that Buddhist cosmology 
parallels Buddhist psychology. This has been called the principle of the equivalence of cosmology and psychology. More generally, some scholars have argued that mythic elements of religions in general often serve to communicate an underlying psychology. The underlying psychology is rarely so directly articulated as such as in Buddhism, although this does have some precedent in the early Upanishads, which predate the Buddha. Nevertheless, it's important to recognize that many mythic elements of early Buddhism probably were taken to some extent as literally true or at least open to that interpretation, and that we should avoid gratuitous demythologizing. At the same time, we should recognize that the early texts often demythologized these matters themselves. For instance, where the eye exists, samiddhi, where visible forms, eye consciousness and dhammas, cognizable by the eye exist, there mara, or the manifestation of mara, exists. Also as examples of this equivalence of cosmology and psychology, we should note that each of the realms corresponds to a mental state within the scope of human psychology. For instance, it's possible to create a figurative hell realm right here as part of the human realm, and many of us actually do that. For instance, by habituating anger and hatred. Through the accrual of karmic benefits or deficits, a saint can create a heavenly realm right here in this world, while a scoundrel can create a hell. The clever listener can work out what an animal realm would feel like, or a hungry ghost realm. Similarly, different realms of concentration provide glimpses. Similarly, different levels of concentration provide glimpses into different levels of deity realms in the early texts. The four jhanas tend to produce rebirths in Brahma realms, while the formless arupa attainments rebirths in formless heavenly realms where beings are said to have no bodies, only minds. With regard to rebirth, a cosmological and psychological perspective seem to intersect. In dependent co-arising, we become someone, a contender, in this life at the link of becoming. What we have become propels us into the next life so that we begin the next life as we have become in the last. In this way, our figurative hell might well project us into the cosmological hell. Nonetheless, it is the cosmological hell that is repeatedly highlighted in the early Buddhist texts for those in need of a motivational boost for avoiding demeritorious deeds, and for purifying the mind of unwholesome factors. Similarly, the self-perpetuating nature of samsara is reflected in continuous becoming as a psychological process. The word samsara also carries over figuratively to this present life as the feeling of entanglement or stuckness. Most people feel day by day, and call the rat race, what I like to call soap-operatic existence. 
few of us can find our way out of this. Why do we have these two alternative perspectives, the cosmological and the psychological? Good science was doubtlessly not a consideration in the times of early Buddhism. As always, good doctrine was motivated in terms of its benefit to practice. The cosmological perspective with respect to attainments, particularly higher attainments, is more useful than the psychological at the beginning of practice and through most of the middle of practice when simple ways to frame, understand, and motivate the practice are needed and when actually working with mental factors in detail has yet to develop. The cosmological perspective would also have represented a natural and probably expected way of expression at the time of the Buddha. The psychological perspective is more useful than the cosmological toward the end of practice and, in fact, is what will carry the practitioner to awakening because practice has matured to become progressively about working with mental factors and to require a more nuts-and-bolts empirical and psychological approach. For instance, dispassion is a quality that leads to relinquishing attachments, a quality taught quite early on in the gradual training. A means of developing dispassion is to reflect on the monotony of existence, of reliving the same kinds of experiences over and over and over. Focusing narrowly on daily experiences, one must make the argument one case at a time, but the cosmological level supports sweeping statements like this. Which is greater, the tears you have shed while transmigrating and wandering this long, long time, crying and weeping from being joined with what is displeasing, being separated from what is pleasing, or the water in the four great oceans. This is the greater, the tears you have shed. The Buddha similarly talked about the mountains of bones we have left behind and the vast quantity of blood we have spilled. The cosmological perspective invites further myth, and myth can be outrageous when it wants to be. But the way we relive the same kinds of experiences endlessly over and over is outrageous, can hardly be exaggerated, and is difficult to capture in a more sober, objective means of expression. That is why even for one not inclined to take the cosmological view of early Buddhism literally, filling the great oceans with tears can be a very effective image to frame and motivate our practice. It expresses an otherwise almost inexpressible truth, perhaps with a lot of poetic license. Let's stop here. We've looked at the cosmological view of spiritual attainment. Next week, we will take a psychological turn.